bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Fratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Northern California Regional Director at the California High-Speed Rail Authority, Boris Lipkin. Boris has been working for over a decade to usher in a new era of high-speed rail in the Golden State. Boris is here today to discuss the status of high-speed rail in California, what he has learned from high-speed rail systems abroad, and so much more. Thanks so much for joining us, Boris. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your role as Northern California Regional Director at California High-Speed Rail Authority? What's your day-to-day like? Sure. So the California High-Speed Rail Program is run by the California High-Speed Rail Authority. We are a state agency, so our headquarters is in Sacramento, in the capital, but we also have three regional offices. So I lead our Northern California office, which covers the project from San Francisco down the Caltrain Corridor through Santa Clara County and then out to Merced County. And then I have a Central Valley counterpart and a Southern California counterpart. And so that's how we've divided up the state. So in this role, I lead our work in bringing high-speed rail to the Bay Area and, and Northern California. We oversee about 150 miles of, of, of the program, of the system, and that includes everything from our partnerships on existing rail lines, where we're upgrading existing corridors, new work going across mountain ranges in the Pacheco Pass, sensitive wildlife areas and everything else that kind of happens in over 150 miles of, of, a, of a system like this. Uh, and then the day-to-day is a combination of work internally with our team to advance the program. So one of the things that we've worked diligently on for the past several years was getting the environmental clearance done for the sections in Northern California, which happened last year. And then also, of course, working collaboratively with many of our external partners. So we go through over 20 cities, five counties, a dozen different transit partners in various forms that we end up collaborating with. And so I'm often representing the agency in a lot of these multi-agency collaborations that we have across the region. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot of collaboration. One of those is that you sit on the Transbay Joint Powers Authority as a board member. What accomplishments have you had sitting on that board? Well, I think in terms of when I came onto the board, it was in uh, the summer of 2018 and the Transit Center opened, I think it was the couple of weeks after my first board meeting. So I don't know if I can really take credit for <laughs> the completion of the Transit Center. But I do think that the really important part that we've been working on is really getting building momentum for the portal, the rail portion of it. I think it's been incredibly important to have a good partnership between both the two rail agencies, us and Caltrain and the TJPA in advancing that work. And of course, it builds on what we're doing, which is working to bring high-speed rail to the Bay Area. And then this is sort of the the last and maybe the most important one, one mile stretch of getting from the edge of San Francisco into the heart of San Francisco. And that project is really picking up steam. They have advanced through several stages 
of the federal funding process, as well as advanced engineering work and really getting ready to, to move towards construction. And that's been done through a lot of agencies coming together and really pushing and working collaboratively to advance that critical work on the talent portion. Could you now give us an overview of the status of high-speed rail in Northern California and perhaps California in general? Sure. So the California high-speed rail system uh, was first kind of conceived in the 1980s after the French line between Paris and Lyon opened. Uh, I think California really got excited about the idea of, well, can we do that here? It seems like something that would do well. And there's many, many different milestones along the way. But in 1996, our agency, the California High-Speed Rail Authority, was created. But really, the major starting gun was in 2008, when the voters of California approved the beginning of construction of a high-speed rail system in the state. And they gave us a bond measure to fund what at that point was about 20% of the cost of the system, as it was estimated at, at that stage. We broke ground in 2015. And construction right now, as we're sitting here today in 2023, is underway on over 100 miles of the system, just to give you a sense that's the largest rail construction project anywhere in the country. It's the largest new rail line being built since I think the Ford Model T was the number one selling car. So we haven't really built a lot of brand new rail lines in quite a number of decades. But this project is intended to connect from San Francisco through the Central Valley, including the Central Valley cities, and then down to Los Angeles and Anaheim as the first phase. And then the second phase would be the extensions to Sacramento and down to San Diego. So it's a huge statewide effort. As I mentioned, we have over 100 miles under construction. We just began the process of purchasing the first high-speed train sets. So that procurement is ongoing, which I'm very, very excited about. We're also advancing work to extend that over 100 miles to get to finish out the Central Valley portion. So Merced and, and Bakersfield would be the endpoints of that and getting that into service as soon as we can. At the same time, we're continuing to advance the work everywhere across the state. And so one of our key objectives has been to finish the environmental clearance across every mile of the system between Los Angeles and San Francisco. So we have currently over 400 miles out of that 500 or so environmentally cleared. We expect that last stretch between LA to San Francisco be finished in its environmental clearance work uh, at the end of this year. And that's an critically important from the standpoint of defining what the project is, what its impacts are, what its mitigations are, and also positioning it to be able to compete for funding. How long have you been involved with the program in one way or another? So in 2011, I had the opportunity to come back to California on a uh, six-month assignment to work on California High Speed Rail on the, what was then the 2012 business plan for the project. Obviously, that six-month assignment has extended <laughs> quite a bit. I've been working on it now for more, more than 12 years in a variety of different roles, both at our previously at our headquarters and then for the last five years out leading our Northern California effort. What have you learned are the biggest hurdles to achieving a great high-speed rail system in California? And how are you and your team working together to overcome those hurdles? I guess there's a few different things to look at in terms of hurdles. Certainly, We've had hurdles in how we started construction. I think we've been very public and, and clear about those. There's high-speed rail systems in over a dozen countries from Japan and, and, and China and, and South Korea, Taiwan, many of the European countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, etc. But even Morocco and Uzbekistan and others have, have high-speed rail systems. It's just new in the U.S. And what that's meant is that we're creating the regulatory framework within which these systems get built. We're creating the industry for these systems, the knowledge base, and we're sort of the, the pioneer. We're the furthest along. There's 
lots of plans all around the, the country, and that's great. We think there's many regions that it really makes sense to have a uh, high speed or uh, certainly higher quality rail than what we have currently, but we're furthest ahead. And so that means that we're kind of the first ones setting out, working with the Federal Railroad Administration on what it means to prove out a safety case for trains running 220 miles an hour that hasn't been done in the U.S. before. And there's dozens of these sorts of things where we're sort of the the pioneer, the guinea pig, if you will. The technical solutions all exist, but it's about bringing them to the U.S. and being able to implement them here. I appreciate you describing that, Boris, because I think that's where a lot of the costs that people don't see, the cost of change and the cost of rewiring our regulations and the learning curve takes investment. That's right. I, I think starting something new and fresh always, there's an upfront cost to it. As you said, a new rail system at the scale of the system California is planning has not been built in the U.S. for many, many decades, almost a century. How are you looking to use modern technology to make the process more efficient and safe? First, I, I think it's important to understand that what makes high-speed rail different is in part the amount of technology that goes into it. And part of what that looks like, there's sort of a couple different things that drive speed of how fast can a train travel. There's sort of the civil works that it's built upon. So how gradual are the curves or the grades that you're going up or down or, or making turns on and sort of how much, if you've been in a car and you're going around a curve a little bit too fast, you'll know that it kind of throws you towards the window, for example. So making sure that it's comfortable for passengers. And the second thing is the signaling system. So making sure that we know where all the trains are and that how close they can be and, and, and making sure that they can operate safely. And that's a huge technological question. Fortunately, there's pretty established standards in many parts of the world for how to do these things, uh, both on the engineering side of the civil speed limits, but also on the, on the signaling technologies that are involved. But it's very different than maybe some of what we have on our freight lines across the U.S. or places where freight trains are sharing tracks with passenger services or passenger services are running on, on freight lines. So all of that requires a different level of technological investment. Where right now we're just about to kick off the contracts for some of the, those signaling components, tracks, and uh, overhead catenary systems for that Central Valley stretch. And so we're going to be bringing that expertise to the system through those contracts and the construction work there. Recently, you took part in a panel about what it would take to complete high-speed rail from San Francisco to Los Angeles in just five years. Can you share some of the highlights of that with our listeners. Is that kind of timeline feasible and what would it take for us to accomplish that? I mean, I think that panel was kind of just a, a fun thought exercise, but I think it was important to articulate and have a chance to really describe why are these things so hard? Because I do think that there, sometimes there's this Christmas morning effect of, well, I voted for this thing. Why isn't it here already? Gosh darn it. And I think the maybe for me, it kind of breaks down into a, a few different areas. One is you need to have stable funding. The second one, and this is what I think is hard to comprehend when you're not actually involved in one of these projects, is the number of veto points that exist and the number of challenges where, and it's everything from particular property owners. In the Central Valley, we've had to acquire 2,300 properties. Each one of those is an individual negotiation. And while we certainly have eminent domain authority, we could, we can go and condemn property we usually try to have contractual arrangements, basically purchase the property directly from a willing seller, but they might have restrictions. So an irrigation district might have blackout periods tied to 
when they might be pumping water across their canals or other kind of veto points will be restrictions that we have tied to our permits. Now, for wildlife protection or other things, and certainly those are important values, but all of those come at a trade-off of the amount of time it takes to, to build and the amount of open wind, construction windows that you have to operate in. Those two things, of course, if you actually wanted to build this in five years, you would need sort of the construction industry to scale up to that. We're talking about something that would be measurable on the scale of what is the California construction industry if we're spending $20 billion a year, which is roughly what it would take to, to do it in five years. That's not an insignificant amount for the entire in- industry as a whole. Of course, you need to manage all that. So I think it's more the question of all of these things, the reason they're in place and the reason things are, have been done the way they have been is they're all trade-offs and values that we have, I would say, as a society. And so I think the question that it raises and that I think is a, is a good one for active conversation is we've had a lot of policies in place to sort of prevent bad stuff from happening and maintain the status quo. As we are living in a world of climate change, I think it's becoming more and more clear that the status quo isn't acceptable. If we want to actually meet our climate targets, our economic targets and others, we will have to build stuff. And so how can we build big stuff in a modern context while still preserving critical things that we care about? Uh, natural resources, property rights. I mean, all these things are critically important and nobody's suggesting that those shouldn't continue to be emphasized. But I think it's sort of raising the question of what's the right balance and have we achieved it yet? I'm glad you brought up the topic of climate because with a project that takes this much time and is this complicated, the role of climate and climate change has actually changed. We are now much more severely experiencing climate change And I believe in the past, it would have just been a consideration for the future to maybe be estimated or measured. Can you talk a little bit about that? How are you and your team taking environmental and climate changes into play? I think first, the whole idea for building a high-speed rail system, I think, is a testament to Californians' climate leadership. As you mentioned, I think when voters approved the system in 2008, people understood climate change. I think kind of awareness was rising. But I think for anyone who's lived in the state for the last five or 10 years, I think we've experienced it much more personally, (laughs) I would say, than maybe we had uh, up to that point. I I do think that one of our kind of tenets, uh, and it's been central since that very beginning, has been the idea that this is a sustainable project. It's meant to help us achieve our emissions goals. We're talking about substantial reductions in vehicle miles traveled, of course, also taking plane trips, reducing those, saving sort of airport capacity for longer haul flights and helping to decarbonize a very hard to decarbonize air sector. So we're talking about the equivalent of taking 400,000 cars off the roads when the system is operational. So huge, huge climate benefits. But it's also important in terms of sort of that mantra has been our long-term commitment that we made back in 2008, that we will run this system on 100% renewable energy. That was a aspirational goal when it was set out. I think BART is very close to achieving that on on its system in the next couple of years. So what was once aspirational is now sort of getting to be run of the mill, which is great because it shows the advancements that have been had. But it's also how we're building things. So we've had probably some of the most stringent requirements for our contractors. So all of the vehicles we've mandated be tier four, which means that our on-site emissions for construction is roughly 60% lower than typical California construction site. That means that we have incredibly 
important recycling requirements for uh, construction materials, where upwards of 95% of the construction material from demolitions and other things gets put back into the project or other other recycling programs. We've conserved over 1,000 acres of important lands and, and natural resources. So there's a way to do something this big that obviously is targeted not solely for climate purposes. We also think the economic and mobility case for high-speed rail is great, but also doing it in a way that is certainly very conscious of making sure that we are lifting up to those high standards on sustainability as we're building the system, not only after it's actually built. What are the ways that you're also dealing with social factors and so-called underserved communities or communities that have dealt with a lot of pollution or have not had good transportation? I think there's a few different aspects to this. So I think the first part is the decision that was made on the route for the system. It doesn't, I think, fully get understood. But to me, that was a huge testament. Again, this was done in the early 2000s to the equity aspects of, of, of the system. We have experience with I-5, which was built on the western side of the Central Valley, where, frankly, nobody lives or very few people do at least. And with high-speed rail, the decision was made very early on that we don't want to just bypass the Central Valley cities, we want to invest in them. And so the system goes through downtown Fresno, goes through downtown Bakersfield. It's in Merced, Madeira, and other, other cities in the Central Valley. And what that means is that those cities that have not seen state investment of this magnitude maybe ever are seeing billions of dollars of economic activity just with the construction. And of course, the long term is really starting to look at how those places tie into the coastal areas, the Los Angeleses, the the Bay Areas. What does it mean for Fresno to be, instead of a three or four hour drive, a one hour train trip from Silicon Valley? What does it mean for Bakersfield to be an hour from downtown Los Angeles? It starts to transform what kind of economic activity can go on in those places. And then similarly, on sort of the climate side of things, the Central Valley has some of the worst air quality of any basin in, in, in the country. And so when we're making investments, again, to reduce pollution, reduce emissions, take cars off the road, it's incredibly important that that's where this investment is happening. So I think that's the broad spectrum kind of view of some of the equity considerations on the, on the project and where that this investment is happening. I do think that we also have incredibly important work that we're doing in local communities because those are sort of the macro considerations. But it's important to understand that when we're building a 500-mile corridor, it will have effects. And uh, some of those effects will be felt locally and especially in areas in some parts some parts of the state, for example, where we're following existing rail lines, some of those rail lines are where we have disadvantaged communities. We have to be conscious of the history of transportation projects dividing communities and being a barrier, and, and, and we would very much want to not <laughs> duplicate that history and learn from it. And so we've done work in communities like Fairmead, for example, uh, in Central Valley, where we're making investments in that community, understanding that our project will have impacts there, and really looking to offset the impact that we have by also improving the things that the community really cares about, um, so various facilities there. And then similarly, between San Jose and Merced, in that project section, this is one I'm, I'm very familiar with, we have eight different environmental justice communities that the, the alignment goes through. Um, we worked during the environmental clearance process with each one of those to identify the impacts that those communities would face. Of course, our normal suite of mitigation, so if we have noise impacts, we might, for example, build a sound barrier or something like this, but also what we can do to go above and beyond. And so in some of those areas, for example, if we have a noise impact, maybe we'll not only 
uh, mitigate noise from, from our project, but also from the nearby freeway that also impacts that same neighborhood. Or other investments that the local communities have prioritized and worked with us to identify these are the things that are really important that you, High Speed Rail, can help us with to offset the impact that you're going to have. And I do think that's a new way of looking at how can we make sure that A, we're meeting the overall objectives, because I do think it's incredibly important where the overall system goes, who are the people who are going to benefit, how does it connect the state, but also, again, as we're doing it, that we're not missing or glossing over impacts to specific neighborhoods or communities that we're going through, where there are real impacts. And I do think it's our responsibility to address those. And in my experience, what that looks like is actually creating tables and conversations in each of these communities about what people are experiencing. It's a very place-based strategy. I mean, our outreach team spent, frankly, years out talking to people and understanding each neighborhood is different, even if it's different neighborhoods in San Jose. Well, each one is going to have its own set of challenges where the people in that community might face and have a different relationship with uh, our agency and our work and, and sometimes the city and others as well. So it's, it's an incredibly important work to be done at that very granular local level. So we've talked to community members, service providers, a broad spectrum of community that really understands what it means to be there and what are the current challenges that they face. When you are in communities or otherwise having conversations about the project, Boris, how are you able to engage people in the passenger experience? If the authority wants to build the most advanced rail service in the U.S., what does that mean for passengers? And are people able to wrap their heads around that? I think that's a great question. And it's something that I think we're just turning towards having that specific conversation on the system. And it's an incredibly exciting one, incredibly important one. For those who have experienced high-speed rail in other countries, it doesn't generally feel from a passenger experience to similar to what maybe we have currently on our commuter rail lines or maybe even on our uh, Amtrak routes in, in the U.S. Right now, we're just embarking on the rolling stock procurement, which means that we get to talk to people about rolling stock design. So what will the trains be like? What will it be like to ride? What are the amenities that they're interested in? And so our um, we have our early train operator, Deutsche Bahn, which is the German rail operator, who are helping with us with that procurement. And they started to go out and talk to folks and ask them those questions. Well, what should a California high-speed train set be like? And then in the next stages, they're going to start doing mock-ups and test diff- different components and, and different trade-offs of how to use the space and, and the types of service that we can provide in the trains. The other thing that's starting to happen is that we're advancing the design of the Central Valley stations. And so again, I think this is incredibly exciting and important because while you can go to our website or go to um, buildhsr.com and see hundreds and thousands of uh, photos and and drone video of construction, major structures and everything else that's been built to date, but the way that people will experience the system will be the stations and it'll be the trains. Uh, And so we're now just turning to the designs of those, which means that we really get to think about how can a station be something that maybe connects two neighborhoods? That's what we're doing, for example, with our Fresno station design between downtown and Chinatown. How can we integrate with existing stations uh, like we are in the Bay Area, Deirdon, Gilroy, Milbrae, and San Francisco? What should our trains be like uh, inside? Should we have different classes? Should we have amenities for kids to play in, which we've seen in some other systems, a room that people can take a meeting on the train in or something like that. So, I mean, there's hundreds of these kinds of questions that are really the part that will define the details of the passenger experience. And I think, fortunately, we have lots of examples from all over the world of what has worked elsewhere. And it's about picking which ones of those make sense here and maybe adding some new ones that uh, haven't been thought of yet that really make sense 
for our system, for our passengers and our citizens. That's such an exciting inflection point. It's so great that it's getting more real to have those conversations and not just the drone videos of the rights of way. Right. <laughs> Which are also great. I mean, look, I, I think <laughs> those I are amazing. Question, I, I get the question of, is this thing still happening? And being able to say, well, here's a giant structure that we built is certainly useful evidence that this yes. thing is happening. Yeah. But the stations are the real evidence. Like actual humans will use this. Exactly. <laughs> so it's an exciting time to be on the project. Speaking of learning from high-speed rails in other parts of the world, you and I have both studied high-speed rail systems in other countries, and I know you've been on many study trips. How do you parse those trips? What are the real lessons we can and should learn from high-speed rail systems in other parts of the world? So what I always learn is it's not that, well, they did it there, we should just do the same thing here. It's not that simple, but it's finding things that can work. And so there's some really useful just even phrases and monikers that kind of come from some of that experience abroad. A couple of my favorite ones are, for example, can't remember where I got this one, but it's, if you want to go fast, don't go slow. And so what that really is talking about is if you want to design a system to be fast, one of the things you really have to target is the stretches that are the slowest parts of it. So it, it doesn't help if you have a system that's mostly 200 miles an hour, but then for 50, 60, 70 miles, you're going 40 for example. And so you really need to target some of those slowest stretches because that's where you get the most bang for your buck in terms of the overall speed of the travel time for a passenger. Another one that I'm a big fan of, and I, I would do it in the original German, but I, my, my German's not so great, but it's organization before technology before concrete. So basically, if you can solve a problem by reaching an agreement with another agency organization, that's going to be orders of magnitude less expensive than if you need to make investments in the technology. So for example, as we talked about in the beginning, signaling systems and things like, of that kind, and that'll be orders of magnitude less expensive than building concrete. So basically building new civil works, new rail lines, et cetera. And so I think a great example that, that we have on our system is that when we first came out with plans for high-speed rail in California, we said that on the Caltrain corridor between San Francisco and, and San Jose, we want to four-track the entire Caltrain corridor, great separate everything, which is a solution that has a whole lot of concrete involved with it to do that. Now, the, for those who might know that area, the Caltrain corridor has been there for 150 years. The communities have literally grown up around the rail line. So many of their downtowns are right where the, the rail line is. And if you want a great separate, you're going to just blow out many of those downtowns. I think rightfully had a lot of opposition and a lot of people very concerned about those impacts. And what came out of that kind of back and forth with those communities was ultimately the blended system. So we're making investments in upgrading the Caltrain corridor and electrifying the corridor, which that project again is, is set to open next year, which we're very excited about. And then working together to have a blended system. So us sharing tracks with Caltrain. That means that we go a little bit slower. That means that we have probably more complicated arrangements to be had in terms of all of the service planning and everything else that needs to go on between us and Caltrain. So that's on the organizational side. We'll need to make sure that the signaling system can handle both services. But ultimately, that's a much less impactful, much less costly solution to how do you get trains into downtown San Francisco. I think those are the kinds of things that it's not that we're just copying a design from somewhere else, but it's how do you think about these things? Where do you target the attention of which problems to, to tackle and how do you go about them. And I think there's lots of knowledge out there uh, down to 
the, the most minute technical details of wheel track interfaces. So how do you make sure that the wheels of the trains and the tracks are built for each other? I mean, those, there's dozens of these things, but I do think that it's about bringing the right lessons and then figuring out what is the right California application of those lessons that you can bring from abroad. Mm, thank you for framing it that way. I think that's really helpful because a lot of folks are invested in looking abroad. So it's helpful to have that framework. A few closing questions for us. First, when you look out into the world, what are the signals that make you most optimistic about the future of high-speed rail in California and across the country? Well, maybe part of the answer is, is your own question in that when we sort of started upon this and when I joined the program in, in 2011, it felt a little bit lonely. We were sort of the only ones seriously talking about high-speed rail, Florida and, and Wisconsin and, and others, Ohio, sent back their uh, recovery money uh, to uh, upgrade their rail lines or go to, towards high-speed rail. And so it was a little bit of a lonely place. And right now it's getting less and less lonely. We have projects in the Pacific Northwest, in Texas, obviously there's Brightline in Florida and potentially from, in, in, from Las Vegas to Southern California. There's Midwest and Southeast and others who are seriously, uh, Colorado's looking at the front range and others. So there's an interest in investment in inner city rail. But I do think that there's interest across the entire country. I think there's a realization that it might not be a national network of high-speed rail, but it might just be a bunch of really good inner city rail systems and lines across various regions and parts of the country. And that's really intended to help connect many places together in a way that they're not today. I see all those projects kind of coming up from across the country. I'm, I'm certainly very optimistic about the future of rail in the U.S. Hmm. Two quick closing questions. First, managing major infrastructure projects can be a stressful ordeal. Where do you find order in the chaos? I think the way you find order is understanding what the mission is helps. So that's sort of the North Star. And in these sorts of jobs, there's was one other person who's ever been in this role. Uh, there's not a playbook for how do you lead a project of 100, 150 miles over high-speed rail line within a state system and a state agency and all these things. And so having that kind of North Star of what are we doing and why are we doing it and having that be the unified mission for the entire organization is incredibly helpful. And I think there's been a premium, especially under kind of current leadership, on progress and being able to make tangible strides towards delivering the program on, on every mile of it. Uh, and that's incredibly important. And it helps to kind of weigh the scales towards we're going to do stuff and not being shy about it. And that helps to organize some of the chaos as you described it. And I think that you, it's important to continue to march forward. It's important to understand where maybe mistakes were made and how do we fix them? How do we learn from those experiences and make the reforms needed for our next work? Excellent. And one last question. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? That's a great question. I mean, I'm certainly very excited about some of the huge tunnels <laughs> that have been built in Europe and other places. You are the first person who has said that, Boris. <laughs> well, we have a big tunnel we need to build, so there's some good experiences out there. Fortunately, it's not as big as the Goddard Tunnel that have been completed. I am also excited that Japan is building out a, a maglev line, and so I would certainly love to ride that when it's completed or see it uh, as it's being built. But honestly, I'm also partial to the day that I get to ride high-speed rail in California. I'm pretty excited for that day. <laughs> for sure. Boris, that's all I've got. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a very fun conversation and I look forward to hearing more podcasts and the, all the great people that you've had a chance to talk to over the previous episodes. Our guest today, once again, was Boris Lipkin. Thanks so much for joining us, Boris, and telling us about the exciting future of high-speed rail in California. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you all once again for listening to our show. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Bratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. 